Hello, Annabelle. You can just call me Dave. My name's full name is David Wilson, but I Dave. Have... I prefer Dave. I heard it's Mr. Wilson, in fact. AKA Mr. Wilson. Just depends who you're talking to. Dave Wilson has been described as the quintessential Aussie bloke, a true character who absolutely loves a chat. I think if you follow your passions, life will always be good to you. Some people follow the dollar, but I'm a great believer that if you follow the passion, the dollar, you know, it's like the pound and the penny, the dollar will always look after itself, yeah. That's my belief. I've met some quite highly educated idiots, but, you know, every village needs one. (laughs) One with a degree is even better. (laughs) You may know him as the bloke who runs Clare Valley Tours, but he has lived quite a full life before transporting tourists around. He's been a wall classer, excavation contractor, uh, the resident grave digger and a private wool buyer. In this episode, you'll learn all about Among and Die Shandy, uh, Dave's recreational flying escapades, because, of course, he also flies a plane, and the time he accidentally dug a grave in the wrong spot. But it's also quite insightful, especially when he reflects on his wool buying days and his relationships with farmers and his vision for Clare Valley tourism. Enjoy the journey with Mr Dave Wilson. I'm a Clare boy. I'm, um, I came to Clare in my mother's womb, actually. And um, Dick and Dot were my parents. Uh, Dick and Dot Wilson, they were the first vets to come to Clare. And they were the first vets north of Gawler, way back in the, in the late 1950s. Did you my, have any siblings? Yeah, I've got one older brother, uh, twin sisters, and another little sister under that. So there's five of us, all scattered far and wide now. Got a little sister over in Holland, uh, one sister here, Annie, physio. Sister Jane, her twin is down in uh, the Barossa Valley. And brother Roberts, he's over in the uh, Riverland at the moment. Yeah. So did anyone follow your parents' footsteps and no. get into the vet game? No, no, no. Quite simply, no. No, no, well, we heard Latin every night, both parents talking about their cases during the day. And uh, skipped me, but it did go to my daughter. That scientific gene. So my second daughter, Nikki Lee, uh, she's a she has a doctorate in animal science. So what was family life like, childhood life like in Clare back in those days? And what era are we talking about? We grew up in the 1960s. I'm a 58er. Some will say that you know, we were little mongrels, but you know I prefer the term free range. We've <laughs> <laughs> And, and mum and dad were both busy, extremely busy people. Um, we had uh, a lady, Moira, she used to come around and help in the house and with us kids, kept us in line. Moira was, Moira was the boss. But, you know, we grew up with ponies and, you know, there was dogs and cats. It was a menagerie. So it was always interesting. We also grew up as, um, we were seconded as vet nurses. So there was, you know, a big gruff farmer would come in and, yeah, I can handle this, I can do that. And the next thing you know, he's on the floor. And one little story with mum was, you know, she, uh, she lanced a, a boil on a little dog, on a sheepdog. And the big farmer, six foot four down, he went. And uh, he, he was stuck against the door. And mum was only little. That was it. Yeah, there was a bit of a problem getting this fella out of the way. And an Neath-sized dog on the table and a, a prostrate guy on the floor. It was, yeah, which one do I fix? <laughs> Tended to the dog first. He it's was all right. to clarify that. Did your parents stay in the Clare Valley? The, in, did they retire here as well? 
They buried here. So they buried yes, here? Yes, they, they stayed. They stayed. They stayed. Dad was from Kangaroo Island and Mum was from Dubbo. And Mum went through, I'm not quite sure what year it was. It was the late 40s, early 50s, 1950s. Uh, if you look at a veterinary intake now, it'll be 100% or 98% women going through. In that day, it was reverse. Mum was, well, I think, one of three, two or three that went through the intake of 100 Wow. So, yeah, she was a pioneer in her own right. So they met at vet school? Yes. Yes, mum was a bit older. She was a cougar. Were you close with your parents? Was, I think as close as every other family. It was just a normal family. There was a lot of huffing and puffing and there was a lot of expectation too back in the day. But, yeah, no, I don't think it was any different to any other family. It was good. We had a good childhood. You did all your schooling in Clare? No, no. Ah, um, I okay. was sent off to college. Oh. And uh, third term, grade seven, and and I went down there, and uh, academia and I didn't mix. Where did you go to school? Scotch. Ah, oh. yeah, I went out to the. Yeah, it's a wonder I haven't got a plum in my mouth actually. But, but they were good days. It's when you left home actually. When you got when you were sent to boarding school is when you left left home. So, so you would have been twelve, eleven, yep, twelve. Yep, twelve mm. years old. Terribly homesick when I first went down, and then. One of my good reports was that uh, I spent more time trying to get out of my schoolwork than actually doing it, and uh, so it obviously stuck. But I was meant to do other things, not academia. So. Did you go right through to grade 12? No, no. I finished at leaving, which is uh, year 11, I think it is now. Then I went back and um, I did wool classing. So Dad's parents were off the land, as were Mum's, but Dad's parents had, uh, they were heavily involved in uh, merino wool, running a bungaree line actually, uh, Lincoln Green on Pennyshaw and Kangaroo Island. I don't know, I had this uh, affiliation, of the, oh not affiliation, that's the wrong word, a draw card into the something in agricultural and uh, I like sheep and I like wool and I went back and I did that so that was the that was the start of the wool career. What was it like cracking into the wool game back in those days? Oh look, that that was easy. That was really easy. I had a um, classes ticket and we had to, part of the wool classes course was to go off into shearing sheds working. So you just had to ring a contractor and you had a job and it didn't matter where it was. And, you know, I found myself in Western Australia and I went away for a trip with a mate once. We were going to go to Queensland for a month and uh, <clears throat> he'd had a girlfriend at Adelaide. The lure of a woman. You know. <laughs> we ended up back in Adelaide six days after we left. We got to Brisbane and then expressed back to Adelaide, you know, well, I've got to go, he said, I've got to go. And on the way back, we stopped at Broken Hill on a Saturday morning and I applied for a job with Grascos and um, they were shearing contractors. And I found myself at uh, Mungandai on the right. Queensland border on Tuesday morning. Wow. So, yeah, turned around and went straight back up. And that's where I had my first mung and die shandy. Oh, what's in a mung and die shandy? Well, well, I was Apart 17 the... years old. The voice was squeaky. And uh, these guys, they decided they were going to set me up a little bit. So um, do you remember the old um, tin pannikins you used to get? Oh, they no. were great big, great big enamel mugs. And oh, yes. a half pint one or a pint one. Oh, my I... dad had those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, it was a big pint one. <laughs> and I'd never drunk dark beer. So um, they poured a tin of uh, Tui's Dark Ale in, Tui's Old, and then they filled it up with McWilliams Royal Reserve Port. Oh, yeah, it was a good one. It was good. I only needed one. 
was good fun. It was good fun. But the shearing sheds, they were, they were great fun. They were great levellers for, for young kids. You know, we learnt to, to uh, well, boarding house did that as well, but learning to work with men and other people and having to do your job and a rouse about in a wool class uh, uh, didn't matter what job you did in the shed. You were at the beck and call of the shearers. They set the pace. Mm-hmm. And it's still true today. You know, if they wanted to work really hard, you worked hard. If they went slow, you just trotted along. So it was, you know, it was an interesting place. Saw so a lot of country. Apart from... Mungandai, where else did you travel? Oh, down into Armidale, back of Broken Hill, north of Broken Hill, uh, Western Australia, Ravensthorpe, then up into the Wheat Belt, down into that southwest corner, Mm -hmm. um, lower Queensland. Yeah, no, it was good. I can imagine you'd work hard and play hard. You did, and it's interesting, you know, you travel back into that country now and you think, why didn't I go and see that when I was here? But, you know, there was always something else to do. I was only, you know, I was only... Teenager at the time. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you how old you were. Yeah, so seventeen ten. through to about twenty. I did that. Ah, so, so then I come home for a stint, then I go away again. Yeah, so seventeen to twenty. So what did you do after your wool classing experience? Ah, oh, um, I came back to Clare. I didn't know quite what I was going to do, and I managed to get a job with uh, SC Heinrich and Co. And yeah. why did you leave wool classing? Ended up with SC Heinrich and Co. to drive trucks for a. Uh, for a harvest. Ah, oh, okay. And I stayed there for four years. Ah, uh, so that wasn't the plan. So No, it wasn't. There was oh. never a plan as such. To be quite honest, I, I didn't really know where I was going or what I was doing. But I got that job. And then when I was at school, people used to say to me, what are you going to do when you leave? And I'd say, I don't know, but I'll be self-employed. So working with Heinrichs, that exposed me to uh, trucks and earth moving. And from there, I kept looking around and wondering where there was an opening. So I bought a skid steer loader when I was 26. That was the start of my self-employed life. That was the first skid steer loader or bobcat to come into the Clare Valley. There are a dime a dozen now. Everyone's got one. We'll get a bobcat in. So you're self-taught, obviously, as well. No one's ever taught you how to operate machinery. Oh, Heinrichs gave me the... uh, the, I did my apprenticeship there, but when I got a... a, um, Skid steer, they're a different beast altogether. And, uh, yeah, so self-taught, yeah. Good and idea. then, um, <clears throat> of course, I can do that job. Of course I can. <laughs> Bluff your way through through some of them until you've got such time as you've got a bit of confidence to take more on. And How long did you do that for? I was in that for six years. I did about 6,000 hours on that little machine and uh, it didn't do my back any good. Mm. So uh, I'm cautious of, of what I do there now. I then took on the contract... You know, I expanded that and I took on the contract with the council and I bought the backhoe from the council and that set me up. Uh, instead of saying I was in excavation, I used to dig the grave, so I'd tell people I was the grave digger instead. <laughs> <laughs> Just be careful if I get a yellow card with your name on it. <laughs> and then, uh, and then How many graves did you dig? Oh, I don't know. It was enough to, it was enough to get them right, though, but, you know... And, some were too short, some were too shallow, some were <laughs> I turned up at the cemetery one morning and uh, it was a Saturday morning and Ernie Heinrich was the uh, um, local undertaker and Ernie used to get a bit excited. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and anyway, I was told to dig a grave and it was, a, what was it, the third row, eastern side, third row or something, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and there'll be four stones on the site. So 
I went down and I dug the grave on the third aisle, not the third row, and I was walking back and there I saw this, oh, look at this card, it's got the same name, there's four stones on it. And Ernie turned up and it was 10 o'clock and the funeral was at 11 and Ernie said, and he called me Willie, he said, where's the grave, Willie, where's the grave? And I said, just digging it down, don't worry about it, it'll be ready, it'll be ready, we've got an hour. I want to sit down. He, but he was not happy. <laughs> he was not happy. I said, "Don't stress. They'll wait." <laughs> and he, they did. They had to. So anyway, we had to fill the other one in in a bit of a hurry. <laughs> and, and I knocked this grave out in record time. And Ernie came back just before, and he laid out all these little things and straps to and the grass to put the coffin around and made it all neat and tidy. And I hid the truck and <laughs> hit the tractor. I was sort of basically driving out the gate as the, as the funeral procession was coming in. It was a bit close, but anyway, none. Just like show business, you carry on, no one knows. <laughs> so the little things in life, yeah, they were good fun. Oh, that's good. And then we had some doctors on a tour one day and we talked about the grave digging and I said, I used to work with you guys. And they all looked at me and I said, what do you mean? I said, I was one of your colleagues. I said, how'd it go figure? I said, yeah. I said, I was a grave digger once. I said, I used to bury your mistakes. <laughs> oh, it's a great level. Yeah, we all work together. <laughs> what did your mum yeah. and dad think about how progressive you were? Dad came off a farm where he couldn't see an end. He needed something more. And he, he um, always wanted all of us to go to university and get a degree in something. It wasn't going to happen, but that was his, and he pushed, he pushed. But as different things grew and he could see that uh, you were doing well, then, then he got behind it. But his, his original wish for us was to, to be educated and, and professional. Well, now. We're just professional now. <laughs> Not educated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, educated in life. You know, there's there's so many different ways you can look at it. Um, you know, university education is, is wonderful. And, uh, you know, I'm glad one of my children have it. But, you know, I wish the other two all the best in their endeavours and what they do as well. Uh, it's not the be-all and end-all. And there's, I think if you look at the world and you look at the billionaires, self-made billionaires, most of them have never had a university degree in their life. And, in fact, most of them came from poorer backgrounds and left school. So it just depends how you look at it and what you want and where you want to go in life. I think if you follow your passions, life will always be good to you. Some people follow the dollar, but I'm a great believer that if you follow the passion, the dollar, you know, it's like the pound and the penny, the dollar will always look after itself. Yeah, that's my belief. I've met some quite highly educated idiots, but, you know, every village needs one. <laughs> one with a degree is even better. <laughs> Okay, we've talked about your excavation yep. career and the grave digging career. What happened after that? Oh, dear idea. And you did that for six years. Yeah, yeah, my back started giving up. I ended up with a series of medical appointments trying to work out what was wrong. I finally got hold of one guy and he just said, you've got muscular skeletal problems. Get yourself fixed up, sort all your stuff out sell your business he said you'll be in a wheelchair at 55 and uh how old are you, were you at this point i think it was just touching 30 31 yeah and and you've got you know huge 
uh, debt and, you know, you're trying to run a business and your and family. And so it was a bit of an issue. But anyway, stoic as always, continue on. You, you must know. have been in a lot of pain. It was, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. It was, it was just chronic. Um, but anyway, well, look, it, it is what it is, you know, define pain and define what it is. It means something different for everyone. But And that's because you were operating the, the machinery and putting the Well, the, it had no suspension, or... you know, the yeah. skid steer had none, none mm. whatsoever. So you felt every jolt and it, it finally wore things down. Mm. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm all right now. I've, I've got to be careful with some things that I do, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm got a pretty good... So you um, haven't been I, playing footy out? No, no, <laughs> there's some tennis. things I don't do, you know. Yeah. Like, you, know uh, you know, I have the body of a lover now, not an athlete. <laughs> I'm not a very fast lover, that is, either, you know. <laughs> so I got out of that, and then and then I, I ended up, I worked for WSB for a while as a salesman. Hated it. Absolutely hated it. Um, I'm not a salesman. Oh, I thought you'd be pretty good at that. I was no good at asking for the order. I could talk, but I was no good at asking for the order. I just, it wasn't me. And then one day, uh, I was sort of in the wilderness from uh, the excavation game. You know, you're used to running your own show as well and doing things my way. And, Mm. uh, you know, always have. uh, I always will. And then I I found uh, an advert in the paper for a wool business. Was a was a local wool buyer here, Kevin Simpson, and uh, it was a backyard job. You know, it was a tiny little shed at the back of his house. So um, I thought, well, I can buy wool. Can't be that hard. <laughs> I'm a wool classer. So um, and I hadn't done any wool classing for quite some years, ten years. Pretty easy. Did you miss but, it? I've got a passion. I love wool. Yeah. Yeah. Still do. So I went went down and saw him. We negotiated a deal, and he was selling into direct into Michelle's. So we had a meeting with them, and they said, "Oh, we'll take you on, and we'll teach you." And I thought that's all right. So if I had a dollar now for every mistake I made, and every time I got it wrong, and for every time they took a little advantage of the the green boy, I'd be quite a wealthy man. Oh. So, but anyway, you live and you learn. So I worked with Michelle's. That was, and we turned this little backyard business, doing ten bales a week, into a multi-million-dollar, hundred-bin bulk class store, selling hundred and fifty to two hundred bales a week. What mistakes did you make when you were? Oh, valuation of wool, classing wool, um, classing in a shed. You've got say six lines that you put it out to, mm-hmm. and um, you know I did two years of wool classing to get a professional ticket, but a, an owner class, a farmer, can do it in three days. So, you know, there's that anomaly there, and they'd get it wrong. And then, so we'd buy and then re, re-class. But because a shearing shed, they'll class out into six different lines, their main lines, and then what they don't know what to do with, they'll put to bulk class. And that's where we, where I came in. I was buying a lot of bulk class wool. You know, you buy 20 kilos there, 100 kilos over there, two bales of it over there, whatever, didn't matter. And uh, we'd then class that out into all the different bins. And then you've got Micron, you've got Colour, you've got this, you've got Burr, blah, 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 blah. And uh, we didn't have the, the the joy of throwing it into bulk. Oh, sometimes we did, and we'd let the big, big bulk class store in Adelaide, that would have 400 lines. Um, but that was 100 lines replicated over 
colour and style, and sometimes we didn't have that choice, so we'd bulk class that. But most of it, we'd class it all out and uh, get a three-bale line. And then by the end of that career, I was selling direct into auction, working with elders, and we were taking on small clips and doing it that way. So very successful business. What did you do to become such a successful business? Because it took you, as you said, like every years. business, it doesn't matter what you do, where you go, how you do it. You form a relationship, and there's one word that pops up, and that's integrity. You hold it together, and if you say, "That's my quote," and you know you've got it wrong, suck it up, suck it up. Classic. You know, I went out with a guy I know him really well, and I stopped, stopped on his farm, and he's shearing these lambs. I was distracted. We were talking. I had a quick look at his wool and I put a merino lamb price on. And he came into the shed and he's got six bales, 1,200 kilos of crossbred wool, half price. And I said, these are crossbreds. He said, yeah, I know. You looked at it. And I said, I did. I did. That one hurt. That one hurt. But to this day... Because they were crossbreds and not pure yeah, merino. Yeah, it was half price. Oh. Half price. So, yeah, I probably did, I don't know, a couple of thousand on that one. I would rather sit here and say, I lost 2,000 than say, I reneged on my word and took it the other way. Mm. Um, sometimes you got it wrong. Um, that was just a valuation process. You, you know, you didn't see it properly. Um, so you could make a lot of money some days because you got it wrong. Equally so, you'd lose a lot of money some days because you got it wrong. Mm. Uh, and the markets, that, that was the hardest part of the war game. Uh, we were susceptible to, there was a lot of unrest in the Middle East in the in the uh, late 80s, 90s. Somebody had strapped a suicide bomb to their chest and it had, it had um, fractured markets. It had uh, it spooked markets. You know, you could lose money overnight. Well, the wool price had fallen and not recover, um, things like that. So we were, we were vulnerable to a lot of things. So it was a roller coaster ride. We'd build our way up. And then there'll be a crash. We'd it'll be like the grain. Up. It'll be like the grains industry. It's, it's no different. Yeah, exactly. It's no different. And, yeah. and and the hardest part with the wool game as a trader on the outside of the agricultural game was the government would government would give benefit and aids to the farmers because of um, fluctuating income, but because we were traders, wholly and solely tied to that same market and the fluctuations, we couldn't get that uh, averaging of income over the years. It was this year's or that year what it was and that hurt some years you'd have a really good year tax man would take it then the next year really bad year and you had the tax from last year it hurt sometimes but all in all look it was it was good but i just got i got tired of it and, and, the, and the wool industry dealing with farmers you know they come along they'll call you a thief and they'll call you this and they'll call you that because you we're all buying and selling in the same market some of it was friendly some of it wasn't and some of them, yeah, they could really, they could really take you down. They were, they were quite. What's the word I'm looking for? It was bullying. Mm, nasty. Yeah, it was nasty. And after 16 years, for me, it, it finally got to me, and I said, "Enough's enough," mm. and uh, I sold it. So you worked damn hard, by the sounds mm. of things. Mm. As you said, there were highs and there were definite lows, like all business. Yep. Did it break your heart that you left the industry? No. Because of that reason? No, no. Okay. In amongst all that, I ended up divorced. I was by myself. I was leaving home at seven, some mornings, and getting home at nine. 
and uh, the bookwork, the housework, domesticity, kids, etc. When it was over, it was over. I didn't look back. It was past. I still look over the fence every now and then. So I wish I had the cash flow, but uh, I don't want to go back into that into that game. It was, uh, yeah, I'd had my time. What were your hands like? Touching all that soft wall. Soft as soft. I know. Soft as soft. Yeah, ladies love them. And then the fingernails are as hard as hard. Yeah, the, it's quite amazing. The lanolin really toughens up your fingernails. Really? Never break a nail. Oh. Yeah. You <laughs> Not lucky? that it worried me. <laughs> <laughs> I did try and explore my feminine side once, but, you know, it didn't work. <laughs> so when um, you walked away... Yep. You sold the business to Daryl Andrisky? Yes, yes. And he changed the name to? Complete Wool Services. Okay. Do you still own the building on? No. No. No, no I never did. So that's. Uh, well, is anyone going to do anything with that building? A demolition order. Okay. <laughs> One day. Oh, look, the Tominga <laughs> Hotel, we were, uh, you know, it was full. It was totally full of wool. Out the back, you know, we just had it filled up. And um, Tominga complained one day that there was rats and mice coming out of the wool, over into the kitchen. And we got this rather, rather <laughs> terse message that, you know, they didn't want us there. I said, well, stop feeding them. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, I haven't got any food over here. They're coming over to you to eat, so you stop feeding them. They'll go away. How did they take that? <laughs> well, it was the end of the discussion. We <laughs> didn't have any more. What did you do after exiting the war game? I had 18 months off. Oh, renovated so the house. Oh, okay. Renovated the house. Um, got bored and discovered that I didn't have cash flow anymore because, you know, I needed to get out. It was time to get out. I was in a little bus one night going across the borough for a dinner and the lady in front of the bus, was uh, I was sitting behind her and she was talking to somebody else and saying that she was going to sell the the business that was Heather Bradley and um, I just sat on it and a week later I rang up and mentioned that and I said are you serious and she said yep I said well figures please I had them the next day tossed that around for a week played with the numbers put an offer in and that was it where we went so why why tourism I think I'm a natural show off <laughs> I like people, I like talking to people. I think that I've actually found something that really suits me, but probably at a time in life when I'm good for it. There's an old saying, you're the sum of all of your experiences. So as it stands now, the wool game, the excavation game, the, the agricultural learnings that I had, a bit of viticulture, and as you drive around a, a rural district, you know, this was this, that was that. This is, and people are not only interested in seeing things, but they like the why. Why do they do it? Mm. And once I understood that, and that's what I mean, the, the sum of all of that experience came in. Oh, they do that because of this, you know. What's that black crop? It's a pea crop, you know, they desecrate it before. They do this and this. They do this for that reason and that for this reason. Ah. Where does it go? What do they do with it? And it's the why. And people get interested. And once they're interested, the questions come. And the more questions you get, the better day it is for everyone. Mm. Because, uh, you know, they just don't take home um, 
the views of the valley. They take home an insight and part of the valley, and they've learnt something for the day. And that's a lot of people are actually looking for that and wanting that. So, and I found myself just there doing it naturally. So, when you started, were you really busy? Did no, no, we run hot and cold. Oh, okay. Claire's a seasonal base. Okay. We haven't got the critical mass here to to be running all day every day. It's just not here. We're just at the moment looking at different things. And so how are you supplementing your income, especially after during COVID as well? Um, government grants. If we didn't have the government grants coming through, we wouldn't be here. Simple as that. That's mm. taken us through. Having said that too, you know, like you can always hang on a little bit longer when you own your machinery or your buses or your vehicles. I'd hate to be a start-up with uh, being extremely high-geared. And I don't buy brand new. It's not warranted here. And it's just too expensive for the return on it. So, no. so how long were you running Clare Valley Tours before COVID hit? Eight years. Eight years. You are yeah. very well established by that yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah, You said government grants have helped you during this time. Oh, indeed. But weren't you driving trucks at some stage? Yeah, yeah. I went back truck driving for Heinrichs 40 years later. You're still so, doing that now? No, I did it for two months at the start of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they rang up last week and wanted me for this week, but I couldn't do it. That was good fun. <laughs> you know, like we were driving these old shit boxes back in the day, old Leylands <laughs> and commas and everything like that. And, you know, you sort of, they were you know, 17 tonnes and really, really slow. Yeah, it was good to get back in a, in a big banger and, you know, while you go down the highway. It was good fun for a little while. I don't, I don't want to do it again. Why? They worked me to death, Heinrichs, you know. I don't want to do that. They can do that themselves. Yeah. So if things started to pick up now that... Yeah, things have picked up now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's looking a lot better. I've also invested in a, another bus. We were going to take the market a bit higher, uh, get out of the budget market. I, w- I was never in it, but the South Australian market during COVID became a budget market. It was a very, very difficult uh, price-sensitive market, and uh, I did lose work to other operators because of it, I refuse to work for some prices. Back to integrity, what you'll do and what you won't do. Uh, maintain your standards and uh, you know, value add to a product. But don't don't drop your pricing unless you absolutely have to. It's hard to go back to what you were doing. Oh, back, it's hard to go back to that pricing once things improve. Dare I say it, I don't want to sound snobbish on it, but we were getting a clientele. You know, it was good, it was good fun. But it wasn't working. The viability wasn't there. And I started pushing my price limits, price points up. And the interesting part was as I, the price point went up, so did the quality of client. And as I said, I don't want that to sound snobbish, but we had a far more interested, interesting, curious clientele coming through versus um, how many wineries are we going to do? You know, where it was all about the food and the booze, mm. or more the booze. And now we've got people who, uh, uh, you know, so we do history tours. We do cultural sort of tours. Um, and we'll, we'll package and promote different style of touring, which is aimed at the more educated client. does sound snobby, but... Well, if it's working. It's, yeah, it's working. Oh, look, we'll work for anyone and do anything. But once again, you know... Running around in the middle of the night with a with a busload of drugs is not fun, and you know I've been there with the best of them. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> you've you've got to define where you want to go and what you want to do in yourself in life, uh, and if something's not making you happy, don't do it. Um, simple as that. I want to talk about the highs and lows yeah. of tourism. 
Can you recall a really challenging day and can you recall a big highlight? Oh. A, a great successful day and you walked away going, oh, that was a good day. Nailed it. Nailed yeah. it. Oh, you got me there. <laughs> or even funny or something that went disastrously Some days that you wrong. Had to, look, I had a great – they're lovely, lovely people, but we got it wrong. We got it wrong. I – I booked and organised a wine tour with a with a lunch for a group of concreters, and I should have booked a I should have booked a thumb crawl. <laughs> that went wrong. That went wrong. Did so, you not know that they were a bunch of concreters? Oh well, I was given a brief, so I, I worked to the brief. <laughs> oh, we had it all wet. Look, it was it was amicable. It was okay, but yeah, that was a it was hard work. Oh, the hardest days. In the tourism business is when you get monosyllabic answers. Yep, no. You you can't engage with someone. And you, you just, some days it is hard work and other days it's just extremely easy. You know, you get a, a, some local girls in here, in Clare, uh, funny as a fit, and uh, they'll know who they are if they're listening to this, but I bought a Kia and um, first day out and I've got my local girls in there. They've done five tours with me and... Uh, They've anyway, done five tours. Five tours with me. So, yeah. Anyway, we're, we're, we're skirting down the road, down the back of the Skilly Road, and so Tom Tom helps me. I had a Statesman. I just bought the Kia, and Tom was in the Statesman. We pulled up to say hello on this back road, and the girls undid the windows and all hung out. Kia! <laughs> and it just went on all day, every day. <laughs> All day, every day. And then we had these other another little trip. We had these young girls came down from Port Augusta. And um, you're not supposed to say Port Augusta, but anyway, we want to go on a wine tour day. Okay. And we were 19 to 22. So we got in the car and uh, what do we do? I said, well, we'll go to a cellar door. And I said, I'm going to pour a little bit in the glass and have a little smell and a taste. And I said, basically, it's educating your palate. And if you don't like it, tell the cellar door person you don't like it and tell them what you didn't like about it and they'll try and work out your palate and what suits you. So we got there. This one girl picked up the glasses. Wow, she smells like shit. <laughs> first wine, first glass. And then instead of having a sip, went down like a shot. That was freaking awful. You got any tequila? That was the start of that. We had a ball, an absolute ball. You know, I was old, old Grandpa Dave at the front. Oh God, they were funny kids. They were kids having fun. But yeah. yeah, it was it was a really lovely day. So I think the highlights, the highlights, you can't put it down to one, but you can put it across that you meet a lot of people. And my game today is the wool game was about trading wool, and the the compliments and the abuse that came with it were part of it. But this is about feel good. Mm. Nobody, hardly, some people get on a thing and they get a bit grumpy about something that's external. But most people that get in that bus, and I'd say 99% or the car, are out for a good day. They want to learn. They want to have fun. They want to celebrate whatever's going on. And you're just there to facilitate it. Yeah. And it's good. You said earlier, follow with what you're passionate about. Yep. And the dollars will follow. Yep. So is that being done with tourism? Is, tourism it, is there money in it? Tourism is one of the hardest games I've been in. 
Um, there is really good dollars in it if you get it right and you get continuity. Uh, the problem with Claire is we don't get the continuity, so it's it's okay. But you've got to be frugal. You know, you've got to put a bit of fat away and then live through them. How can we improve the continuity? Claire Valley. Okay. Interesting. Um, when I first came into tourism, I went down in, to SATC and I asked for some help. And I went down there, you know, huffing and puffing and saying, what about Clare Valley? You know, you, you guys should be promoting us. And I was swiftly sat down and told the realities of tourism. Uh, tourism Australia, Sales Australia. And they said, we're up against the, the five giants of Africa, the elephant, the lion, the tiger, etc. What have we got? Oh, a fair bit. Koala bear. Oh, we've got the reef and the opera house and the and beaches. Opera. Yeah, but, and... you know, do you see what I, but can you see the difference? You know, the adventure side of the, of the safari, we've got a cuddly koala. So, oh, okay, you're talking animals. Yeah, so, so Australia, Tourism Australia's got to sell Australia. And then, um, you know, Paul Hogan, have a, have a shrimp on the barbie, you know, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. Then they sell Sydney. Then they sell the states. Mm. Then they sell the capital cities of the states. Then they start selling the regions. And in South Australia, that's the Fluro, Kangaroo Island and um, Barossa. We don't rate. And we're that far down. We're about 13 down the list. And then Clare Valley, where's Clare? We're the tiniest wine appellation in, in Australia. We account for 2% of the national crush in, as a grape industry. Okay, we take 20% of the awards, but we're not known. Now, the beauty about COVID is people were looking for destinations. So Claire became, oh, we've done this one, we've done that, we've done something else. Oh, there's Claire, let's go. So we're up 85% on visitation during COVID, but it didn't transcribe into tours because it was a self-drive market and SATC sell as a self-drive. So that hasn't helped us at all, but what it will do is keep us there. Now, the international markets are coming back and Claire is on the radar because of that new visitation that we did see and people are looking for, still looking for different things to do. So uh, just at the moment, April's filling up with lots and lots of twos and, and fours coming in from New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, Western Australia. And it's really good. Uh, we've got three or four bookings in from overseas already. They're always six months out. So, but it is going to start happening. So mm. I think Claire will be good. The other thing I think we need to do here is to become more unified as a destination body. We've got winemakers, we've got the CBTA, we've got the council, oh, you've got the Main Street Traders, oh, who else? They should all be unified. Bringing all those bodies together and having one voice and one dollar. Each one of those spending $10 as a marketing product Let's bring the five units together and have $50. And you're far more effective. And then you can target your markets and, and who you want to bring in. Now, I think that so needs to be done that, for Claire. Why do you think that's not happening, though? Oh, Claire's famous for factions. <laughs> you know, needs someone to pull it together and push it and somebody, somebody who's really going to do it. Um, Claire's compared to other regions and a lot of people really love the feel of Claire because it's, we're family-owned mm. versus the bling of the Barossa or the, the five-star attainment of the Kangaroo Island, you know. But with that, 
family business comes independence and everyone seems to have a singular agenda and not a unified agenda. That's how I see it from the outside looking into it and that's how I'd like to see it. There's no plans to expand Clare Valley Tours to no. Clare Valley and Flinders Tours or Clare Valley? I've already Valley. done it. We've done Flinders Tours. Okay. We've been to Melbourne. We've been to Tasmania. I'll put a little one on for Kangaroo Island later in the year. Uh, I wouldn't mind doing Maralinga, West Coast. But, yeah, no, we'll look at doing things that, excuse me, I'll look at doing package tours three or four days into Clare Valley out of Adelaide, and I think we can sell those instead of waiting for the twos and fours to hop on. So, yeah, I think we can do that. I understand you fly planes too. Yep, yep, I'm a recreational pilot. And you were the former chairman of the... Former chairman of the Clare Aerodrome. Founding founding vice and then former chair of the uh, Clare Valley Aerodrome. So when did you start flying? When I got divorced. It's like a midlife crisis so, kind so, of thing. Oh, no, it was a couple of years after, and, you know, I, I, I didn't handle it well at the time. Somebody said, oh, for crying out loud, go and do something. <laughs> and I always wanted to fly, so I did. I went up to Perry and I learnt up there, and then I had a 12-month hiatus on that. I, I, was, I was flying a circuit up there, and I'd just gone solo. And uh, a flying doctor was lining up on the tarmac to take off. And I was out over over Perry, over the township. And anyway, he gave this radio call, RFDS, blah, 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 take off for Wallaroo. So I knew he was going to take off and I knew he was going to head south. And he said, aircraft in the circuit, where are you? And I'd only just learned to fly this thing, let alone talk on the bloody radio. <laughs> and um, 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 I said, uh, I'm out to the right. And I was at the right of him. He said... A little chuckle came into his voice too, and he said, "He said that's wonderful." <laughs> but he said, "Which way are you going?" So I know which way right is. <laughs> and, and, anyway, it was a bit of a problem because uh, he was more scared of where I was. I I could see him. Anyway, so I landed the plane, and I didn't come back for twelve months. It took me twelve months to sort of get over that. Get over one. that, yeah. And either was, you know, just life got in the way, and then and then I uh, I went back to it and got into it and. I remember them giving me the ticket and they said, well, here you go, now you can go and learn to fly. And, and I bought myself a little drifter aircraft. That's a two-seater? Yeah, yeah, a little two-seater. Um, it was what they call a rag and tube aeroplane. So when you sat in it, a uh, plastic seat, and you sat over the top of a, um, what could be con- misconstrued as a aluminium irrigation pipe with an engine and wings bolted to it so if you were at five thousand feet and you looked down you had an unobstructed view there was no no cab on it that's exhilarating and terrifying at the same time oh it was fun it was fun anyway i nearly killed myself in that several times and uh but i managed to live and i went further and further with it and just got more endorsements and i ended up doing a bit of mustering as well well not mustering stock spotting i wasn't allowed to muster so I stock spotted. Why weren't you allowed to muster? Because it's illegal. Aerial mustering? Yeah, with the aircraft that I was flying without the correct licences. But oh, fair enough. Okay, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But that was no, yeah, past the statute of limitations on that one. So do you do a bit of that now, no, as in aerial no, spotting? No, no, no. I, I just I did my low-level endorsement. I went and did I did about 250 hours of that. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it was low. It was, you know, we were at treetop. And uh, we were working stock. Um, some of the country you saw when we got into was just absolutely beautiful. But I think my reactions are 
too slow now. So Have you still got your plane? Yep. So it's at the aerodrome? Nope, home. At home? Mm. So fortunate enough to be walk out the back door and go for a fly. Oh, so you got a strip at home? A paddock. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. How liberating. It is, actually. Going back to, okay, I got divorced and decided to fly yeah. or learn to fly. Had it ever been on your radar before to learn to fly? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it had. So it yeah. had been something that... Yeah, Dad flew. Ah. And Dad was more of an A to B pilot, though. He didn't sort of really get into uh, travel. With it. You know, when I said he, he, he first came to Clare and they were the only vets, you know, they were, they were travelling to stations and things like that doing TB testing. A to B, uh, I used it for recreation. And, oh, it was great. And I haven't got my weekends now. They normally work. But there was a whole group of us, you know. We went to Queensland. We went to Victor Harbour. We went to Alice Springs. We went over the West Coast. And, yeah. Yeah, we did a rivers trip, you know. The... Didn't you fly to go rouseabouting? Yeah, yeah, once. Yeah, yeah. I'd <laughs> let my uh, classes ticket uh, lapse, my professional one lapsed, and I needed a new one for the uh, wool classing business, so. I had to go back out and do some rouseabouting, prove that I knew how to class. So uh, it was out at Tommy Wackett's and Andrew Wackett's and uh, probably could have driven there faster. Yeah. Yeah. Wander out home and uh, fly to work, fly <laughs> fly to work three days. And I think I'm the only rouseabout ever ever here to, to, to have flown to work. Well, you did say you're a showman, so oh, I love it. Oh look, it's good fun. It's just good fun. And you know, it's just a, it's a toy, but yeah. Where do you see yourself in ten years time? Driving around Australia in a bus, retired. You driving or someone driving you? Well if I can jag a partner, yeah. Bus driver wants a wife. Yeah. I might I go on maths. I'll be the grandpa version. I'd fly through all those girls on there. Delete, delete, swipe left, swipe left. <laughs> Dave Wilson, thank you so much for sharing your story. I just love chatting to people with such versatile backgrounds and I just loved your story. If you enjoyed this episode, let me know. And if you see Dave on the street, ask if he's had much luck with his maths application. But in all seriousness, Dave, good luck with your future endeavours with Clare Valley Tours. The Voice It podcast is coming up to its one-year anniversary. 19 episodes, over 8,000 downloads. Thank you so much for your support. A little bit about me. My name is Annabelle Homer. I'm a podcast host and produce podcasts for other organisations and businesses. I also run public speaking skills training sessions for adults and teenagers and record audio memoirs for families. So if you're interested in any of those services, let me know. Get in contact. Thank you for supporting The Voice at Podcast. I'll catch you very soon.